I'm going to read an extended section out of Romans, or rather Acts chapter 4. And we're going to focus on just a couple verses in a moment. And then one little phrase, you judge, or you be the judge. But before we read, uh, Harry Ironside, H.A. Ironside, his name was actually Henry Allen Ironside. And leave it to a mom to call Henry Harry. I'm not sure why that was true, but she did. He lived from 1876 to 1951. And Ironside was really important to me because early on, I somehow got a hold of Ironside's commentaries. And he had commentaries on virtually every book of the Bible. And then I got a hold of his old book called Holiness, the False, and the True. And, and those books impacted me. Uh, his book, Holiness, the False, and the True, was the account of his journey uh, from Salvation Army, which in the old days was a Wesleyan group, evangelical, out on the streets. But, but his journey from that to where he ended up, which was pretty much where we are. Ironside gives the story of one point climbing out on a metal girder above the platform when D.L. Moody was speaking. He was just a little lad, maybe 11 years old, and he climbed out. He wanted to hear D.L. Moody. And then shortly thereafter, he began a Sunday school because there wasn't any in his neighborhood. And an 11-year-old, Harry Ironside, H.A. Ironside, started a Sunday school and had 60 kids and some of their parents. That's better than a lot of churches do, right? He joined the Salvation Army young, and it is said that he preached 500 times in one year as a teenager. That's quite a bit, isn't it? He was in his early teens, and I think he accounts this at 13. He was at a party with friends, and he became concerned at what he saw going on, and so he went home. And he kneeled beside his bed, and he just let the Lord know that he wanted him to be in control of his life. And he turned his life over to Christ. At what point he came to faith, I can't say. But he became an avid reader and was uh, influenced heavily by the Plymouth Brethren, Jay and Darby. For those of you that know the Plymouth Brethren, the Plymouth Brethren were the people who were largely responsible for our view of end times. And so at some point, I think he was probably 50, he was called to pastor Moody Memorial Church in Chicago, large church, influential church. He was there about 20 years. Nearly every series that he preached became a book. A commentary. But Ironside's preaching style has been called a running commentary. In England, when they advertised his meetings, they called them Bible readings instead of revival or something else. And here's something you'll like, is that Ironside rarely spoke more than 35 minutes. His typical message would have been around 30 minutes. Now, why did I tell you all of that? Because I'm going to do a running commentary through a little bit of chapter 3 and chapter 4, and I wanted to justify myself. 
by citing someone in history who had that same style. So look with me in uh, back to chapter 3 of Acts. I'm not sure what I said earlier, but we're in the third chapter of Acts. I'm just going to read quite a bit this, this morning and track with me. This is a great story, one that you're familiar with. And there's a couple really important phrases which I'm going to skip over in order to get to the 19th and 20th verses of chapter 4. But stay with me and listen to this story. Acts 3. Now, Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a certain lame, a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple. Seemed like a likely place to get help, because here's people going in, they want to look good, so they give the beggar a little money. And then he saw, verse 3, Peter and John, about to go into the temple, and he said, Alms, alms. And fixing their eyes on him, with John, Peter said, Look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. And Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Wow, what a powerful verse. And what follows is even more powerful. He took him by the right hand, he lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they knew that it was he who had sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. They were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now, as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. And when Peter saw it, He responded to the people, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this or look so intently at us as though we by our power power and godliness made this man walk? So there's the story on which chapter four is based. They had just healed this lame man who very public, everybody knew this guy that went into the temple and he had just been healed. And so In chapter 4, you find the response of the leadership to what had happened. You know, the leaders had a problem. In fact, they had several problems. One is that they had crucified the innocent one. They'd been responsible for taking the life of Christ. They've got a problem. Secondly, the Christ whose life they took was resurrected. They've got a big problem. Because now the one that they had thought an imposter is out of the grave. He's been resurrected. Many people had seen him. Uh, They have a problem. And then the third problem is a lot of people saw this and believed. And we'll see this in chapter 4. So they've got some serious problems. The Jesus that they killed is alive 
and he's doing good works, and the people know it. And I, I think that same problem holds today. You know, the resurrection of Christ, if it's false, then we, as Paul says in Corinthians, we are all men most foolish. But if it's real, if the resurrection is real, then we have something to anchor on because his resurrection is the first fruits, the assurance of ours. So now, reading chapter 4. As they spoke, Peter and John, to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Christ, in Jesus, the resurrection of the dead. There's their first problem, that they're preaching about Jesus, that he rose from the dead. And so they laid hands on him. A good friend of mine used to read this passage and say they laid knuckles on him. Well, it doesn't say that. It just says they laid hands on him. Maybe they laid knuckles too. But they put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard believed. That's another problem. And the number of the men, this is in the church at Jerusalem, The number of the men came to be about 5,000. So this church in Jerusalem is getting really large, perhaps 12,000, 15,000 people, being maybe in different places. Uh, And they've got to deal with this. There, There is a grassroots faith in the resurrected living Christ, and they've got to deal with it, and they know it. So it came to pass, verse 5, on the next day that the rulers... The elders and the scribes, this is this council, the Sanhedrin, 71 leaders of the nation, as well as Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, who actually was high priest also. Uh, Annas was taken out. Caiaphas, his son-in-law, replaced him. And John and Alexander, as many as were of the family of the high priest, they were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in their midst, Peter and John, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you. And to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you whole. This is the stone which is rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Quoting from the Psalms, I think Psalm 118. So notice that as as Peter and John are speaking to them, there is a measure of respect, and they're appealing to any common ground they can find. Uh, they're looking back to the Psalms and bringing that forward and say, they're inferring that this was talking about him. They're trying to establish common ground here. Verse 12, this is where they depart. Nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John 
and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained. They marveled, and they realized that they had been with Jesus. Just a word on that. Uh, They weren't rabbis. They didn't have any formal theological education, but they had something. They'd been with Jesus. Uh, Isn't that a great mark? Wouldn't you love for people, when they talk about you, to say, I know that guy, that gal, and they've been with Jesus. Now, they had physically been with Jesus on earth, but more than that, they had assimilated the teaching of Jesus, and these people recognized it. So, verse 14, and seeing the man, oh boy, we've got this to deal with, the man's been healed, who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it, nor should they have. Verse 15, But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, conspired would be a better word, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them. And from now on that they speak no more in this name. So they called them. They commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But here's the heart of the matter. But Peter and John answered them and said, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. You be the judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we've seen and heard. And so when they further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they glorified God for all that had been done. For the man was over 40 years old, on whom the miracle of healing had been performed. I... As I read this passage, I see three very practical lessons for us. They're as applicable today as they were 2,000 years ago when Peter and John were dealing with this situation in the Sanhedrin. And these are lessons I think that not only do the mature need, but I think our kids need them. Where's my grandkids? Do I have any grandkids here? Okay, I've got some back there. My grandkids from uh, 12 through 18 need to hear this, and the others who are not here need to hear this, because it's appropriate for today. The first thing I observe out of this is that all that is legal is not right. Did you hear me? All that is legal is not right. And... The truth is so important that we cannot negotiate the truth away in favor of government, in favor of law. And it's so important because of this, verse 12. For there is no salvation, or there is no salvation in any other. For there is no other name given among men. Under heaven, whereby you must be saved. There's only one means of salvation. And so, if government says, don't speak in his name, 
What are we to do? That's the question that Peter asks in verse 19 and 20. He says, guys, here's the truth. What must we preach? You be the judge. And don't you think that's as appropriate today as it's ever been? Is that regardless of what government says, and incidentally, uh, every you can reverse that. Not only is uh, not everything that's legal is moral, but everything that's illegal is not immoral. There are a lot of things that are illegal and are become more so in our culture. They're going to become more frowned on. That are absolute truth, and one of them is there is salvation to no other. I think that uh, we are clear that the Bible tells us to obey the government. We are to do that. However, when the government edict is in direct conflict with God's word, then we obey God. So we render to Caesar the things that are Caesar. We pay our taxes. Folks, Christians ought to be the best citizens on earth. We really should. We should obey the laws. If it says 70, drive 70. All, all of the laws. I hope I didn't tread on anybody's toes there. But it, we ought to obey the laws. Uh, and, and Christians should be viewed as a lawful people. Because we are. And so when, when they seek to do something to us, it ought to be that they're grasping at straws because they can't find anything legitimate. So the first point is all this legal is not moral. The second one is this. I don't believe the apostles went looking for a fight. I don't think they were purposely inflammatory or disrespectful. They tried wherever possible to establish common ground, some basis on which to talk to these people. Paul said in Romans, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. And that's still true. As much as depends on us, we live at peace at all. We, we don't, shouldn't go out looking for a battle. You know, I find myself drawn to YouTube. You should all say I'm sorry or something like that. I should hear a sigh. But I, there are so many things on YouTube. Being a sports fan, I see a lot of the old sports figures on YouTube. I like that. I, I watch them. But I also see the conservatives on YouTube. And sometimes I'm ashamed of them. I'm just ashamed of them. They go out looking for a fight. And they incite that. And I don't think that's of God. I don't think that's what we see of the apostles. What we see of the apostles is they are stating truth. And, and folks, if you state the truth, you're going to get some fights. Look for it. The opposition's going to rise up if you state the truth. But don't go looking for it. Uh, Philippians says, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. So... State the truth. Don't look to start a fight. Paul said to Timothy, we are to pray for all who are in authority that they may lead a quiet and peaceable, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life marked by godliness and dignity. And so we pray for the leaders. And when it's necessary, 
to confront. We ought to do it in a way that focuses on truth, not some personal preference, or not uh, in an effort to incite a fight, but rather simply to focus on the truth. I see a third thing out of this. It's implied more than said, but we need to count the cost. Peter and John's life was on the line when they said to them, don't you speak any more in that name. Do you think they were serious? And do you think the implication was, and they said it later, if you do, uh, you're going to reap the reward for it. Don't do it. And I think it's always wise to count the cost on anything on the front end. If you're going to build a house, better make sure you have what you need before you do it. If you're going to buy a car, make sure you can pay for the car. We count the cost of things on the front end, but we especially count the cost when we're speaking out for Christ. I think we have a great illustration of this in Martin Luther. Martin Luther said this. This comes from the Diet of Worms. I always hate it when I say that. Because what does your mind go to when I say diet of worms? Right? Well, the the diet was a council, a gathering of leaders. And Worms was a city, uh, probably better said Worms. But from the from this council meeting at Worms, here's what Martin Luther said. Listen to this. My conscience is captive to the word of God. Thus I cannot and I will not recant because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. Here I stand. I can do no other. And Luther also said, I'm completely willing to retract all errors and I will be the first to throw all my books on the fire if they can provide evidence from the Bible that I have erred. And then he said this, Peace if possible, truth at all cost. Did you hear that? Peace if possible, but truth at all cost. We do not look for peace at the expense of truth. Here I stand. I can do no other. The implication of that is you do what you must do and I'm going to do what I must do. And that's really what Peter and John were saying. Uh, figure it out, folks. We've got to obey the Lord. But he, saying it, he knew full well that there was a price to be paid. And so did Peter and John. Our goal in talking to people is always to win people, not to win an argument. Oh, I can remember back in the day, I would stand in a parking lot, and I did. I have a picture in my mind, and argue over some point of doctrine by the hour. And I forgot that my job wasn't to win an argument. Uh, My job was to win people. And so keep that in the back of your mind. Um, Christ said this to us. He said, I'm sending you out as a sheep among the wolves. So be shrewd as a serpent and innocent as doves. Jesus also said, The servant is not greater than the master. 
And if they persecuted me, we should look for persecution. They will also persecute you. So just just to recap, and there's lots more in this text, but three practical lessons for us. All that's legal is not right. Truth can and has fallen into disfavor, but that doesn't make it any less true. The second one, uh, we do not need to provoke people. If the truth provokes people, and it will, so be it. But folks, we don't have to provoke them. We don't have to seek to start an argument with them. Just state the truth and let that fall where it may. Christ blesses his words. God blesses you when people mock you, persecute you, and lie about you, and say all sorts of evil things against you because you're my followers. Be happy about it. For a great reward awaits you in heaven. Remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. And so I think we need to count the cost, no matter what it is. And there's going to be some cost for following Christ. If you've never experienced it, one of two things is wrong. You just haven't been there yet. It's coming. Or else your voice is not thorough and loud enough to be heard. What's at stake? What is at stake? Nor is there salvation in any other. For there's no other name under heaven among men by which we must be saved. And so we proclaim Christ crucified, buried, and risen. If it's true, and it is, like Peter John, like Martin Luther, like H.A. Ironsides, and a host of others, we can expect opposition. But truth is truth. And so the question becomes, what should be our message? And that was really the issue here. What should be our message? You decide. You be the judge. You determine that. If Jesus Christ is living today in heaven, our intercessor, the one that died for our sins, then you be the judge. What must we say? We must say we preach Christ, crucified, risen, and living again today as our intercessor. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for those who have gone before us. But I thank you most of all for our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we sit here this morning honoring his name, glorifying him, he who is the Savior of the world, the only Savior. And Lord, he has told us that there's just one way, and it's him. Lord, we believe that to be the truth. Help us to stand. Help us to say with Luther, here I stand. I can do no other. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.